The Premier On Podcast is brought to you today by our friends at Java Remix. Java Remix is the perfect blend of 100% organic Arabica coffee infused with nano-emulsified CBD. Cannabidiol, or CBD, is fast gaining a reputation as a remedy to treat everything from anxiety to depression, inflammation to acne. And now it's available in your morning cup of Java. Go to javaremix.com right now and browse through their available products. Java Remix offers traditional ground coffee as well as single-serve K-cups in both regular and decaf. And if you aren't a coffee person, Java Remix also offers CBD-infused teas, bath bombs, and body scrubs. And for our Prove Me Wrong listeners, go online right now, that's javaremix.com, and enter the promo code PROVEMEWRONG for a 20% discount off your entire shopping experience. And Java Remix also offers free shipping on all orders over $40. Once again, that's javaremix.com. Promo code prove me wrong. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Prove Me Wrong podcast. I am your host, Pete Lieb, and I'm glad you're all on board with me today. I have another great show lined up today. And if any of you have ever listened regularly to the podcast, you know that if you present me with a conspiracy theory or a government cover-up, my chips are all in. They're in the middle of the table. Uh, You have my attention. So along those lines, we're going to talk biological weaponry and government cover-up today, specifically through the use of weaponized ticks and Lyme disease. And for those that aren't familiar, because I really wasn't, I did some research myself and discovered that Lyme disease is transmitted to humans through a bite of a black-legged tick, and it affects more than 200,000 people per year if what I researched was right. That's a huge number. Typical symptoms include fever, headache, fatigue, skin rash, and if it's left untreated, it's an infection that can spread to the joints, the heart, the nervous system, and it's very difficult to diagnose, and it's a serious problem. But was it orchestrated by a government who is now trying to cover it up. That is the question to help me unpack that today. My guest is Chris Newby, who is an award-winning science writer and filmmaker. Her documentary film, Under Our Skin, Dive into Lyme Disease Conspiracy, and her book titled Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, will be the topic of our discussion tonight. You can also find Chris online on her website, chrisnewby.com. That's Chris with a K, K-R-I-S, newbie.com. Welcome, Chris, to the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Hi, Pete, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, no, no problems. So, Chris, your journey with all of this started after you personally contracted Lyme disease. Is that correct? Yeah, my, my whole family went to Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, for mm-hmm. a week vacation. And after the vacation, my husband and I came back with a lousy set of tick-borne diseases. And it took uh, a year, 10 doctors, and $60,000 to get a diagnosis, and then about five or six years for us to recover um, from the two diseases we had. So that was my entree into the um, controversial and uh, uh, political world of Lyme disease. Why did it take so long to get the diagnosis? Well, um, 
we live in California and they aren't that, the doctors here aren't that familiar oh, with okay. tick-borne diseases and Lyme disease. And then the co-infection we had, which is babesiosis, which is a little parasite, a malaria-like parasite. So um, even though all of the first nine doctors I talked to, I said, you know, we were on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, it's endemic, Lyme disease is endemic there. We didn't see a tick bite. Um, and they, they've just been, they've learned over the years that they've been told by um, academic medical centers, you know, Lyme disease is a rare disease. Uh, and so they just sort of didn't know the symptom sets of the mixed diseases we had. And they just didn't bother testing us till we were like eight, nine months into what turned out to be serious, um, almost life-threatening disease for both of us. So does it present itself as something else? Is that, I, I get being on the other side of the, of the country as well, but is it something that's easier to diagnose in places that are just more comfortable with it? Or does it present some other way? Well, uh, the, the thing about it is if you have Lyme disease, uh, it's, well, all the tick-borne diseases, and they're, they're just like about 80 tick-borne diseases that oh, you wow. can get. I mean, nor in a typical black-legged deer tick, um, in, in endemic places, there might 25 to 30% of the ticks might have more than one microbe in it that can cause disease. So if you do sort of the mathematical po mm -hmm. possibilities, each combo looks a little different over time. I mean, at first they almost all present as you have a summer flu-like symptoms, you know, high fever, neck ache, achy. It just seems like the flu. And with Lyme disease, uh, the test doesn't work in the first month. It measures antibodies, which is your body's response to the Lyme infection rather than actual DNA from the Lyme disease spirochetes. So, you know, you could... Doctors who are in California might test you in the first month after a tick bite and it's negative, but you might really have it. And that's a really dangerous scenario because you can go on like we did. And after a year, you're, you have a disease condition that you may never get over, you know, if it's combined with other germs. And so all the other co-infections have sort of different presentations when they're mixed with Lyme, like babesiosis has uh, night sweats. Uh, and it can make your spleen enlarged and, uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever mm -hmm. can give you this little pinprick rash on your extremities because it likes cool, cool body temperature. So if you have to wait just, um, uh, even a month, you're living with those symptoms for a month before you can get an accurate test already. How long does it take? I'm assuming there is uh, a workable treatment once you're tested and once you come back positive, there is something that they can do for you to clear it up? Or is it too late at that point? Do you have potentially symptoms forever? Uh, you know, if you if you treat a straight Lyme disease uh, case with antibiotics in the first month, just simple antibiotics like doxycycline or amoxicillin, uh, you can clear it up and you'll walk away from it and ne never know the bullet that you dodged. So if you catch Lyme disease in the first month uh, with, and treat it with an antibiotics, you can get over it no problem. But if you wait longer than that, the Lyme spirochetes can get into your brain, your, your neurological system, places like 
that are protected from the immune system, like where you might have scar tissue in your knees or your back, then it gets, every month that goes by, it gets harder to treat it. In addition, uh, some co-infections like babesiosis, that's that uh, malaria-like parasite, you need a different class of drugs than doxycycline or amoxicillin. You need uh, anti-malarial drugs. So you might treat the Lyme, but the babesia might linger. So that's why it takes someone, a doctor who's knowledgeable on symptom sets of mixed infections and what drugs work best on what, which one of the germs. So you were living with that for a year before you were finally able to be diagnosed? Was it, was it, were those symptoms just persistent for a year? They were waxing and waning and, uh, you know, every month that went by, the low points would get lower. It was severe neurological disease for both of us. It was sort of like having chronic fatigue, early Alzheimer's, uh, and, mm. uh, uh, what else? Uh, joint pains, uh, losing sense of time and place. I remember like one of the low points was driving with a carpool of, uh, soccer boys and stopping at a light, a traffic light. And I couldn't remember what red, green, and yellow meant on the traffic light. Oh, wow. I mean, so seriously, seriously sick, but without a test to prove it, people started thinking that my husband and I were crazy. Like we were just making up this disease for attention, which is so ridiculous. We had chronic, um, like Crohn's disease, chronic irritable bowel sy- syndrome. Um, my husband was at a in, a in a meeting presenting some budget in, in an engineering meeting, and he was writing on the whiteboard, and all of a sudden he forgot where he was and what he was talking about. So he had to oh leave gosh. the room. I mean, it was so embarrassing. No doubt. And you say it took you five years to recover fully? Yes, but yes. You, so obviously, you, so hopefully you are, you have, you feel like you've recovered fully now. You feel like you have all your faculties back. There aren't any of those moments where you, you kind of forget what you're doing or, or where you're at, right? That's all. No, I, I feel like uh, I was on and off oral antibiotics. You know, we, my, my doctor is a very experienced Lyme doctor. Once she figured out the co-infections and everything, she would put me on like a three month course of oral antibiotics and then. I would feel great, and then I would go off them, and then slowly after the, during the second month, symptoms would creep back, and I'd have to go back on them. And then after a certain point, we decided um, I could, uh, you know, I needed to go on IV. So when you go on IV antibiotics, you uh, pulse different antibiotics, and it gets into your brain better because when you take orals, your liver can f- filter them out, mm-hmm. and it just get the bugs in your brain. So once I went on IV, then I was. Uh, much better. And I haven't, you know, so that was in about 2008 that I had the IV and I've been fine ever since then. So you started the documentary first, right? The documentary came before the book. So what, what was the genesis of the documentary? Well, since I'm a science writer and, or tech writer at the time, and I am intensely curious and a researcher when I, when I finally, uh, tested positive, my husband and I tested positive. Then I did the deep dive on research on Lyme disease. And, and I, I realized that what the, the frontline physicians thought Lyme disease was totally different than what patients were presenting for. So I, I said, what we need is an educational documentary. Mm-hmm. So I started researching for the documentary and I ran into another filmmaker who had the same bright idea at the same time. And he happened to be in Marin, California. So we teamed up and 
three and a half years later, uh, we crisscrossed the U.S. interviewing hundreds and hundreds of patients and experts, and that turned out to be the documentary Under Our Skin, which premiered at Tribeca and then a year and a half later was a shortlist finalist for the Oscars. That was 2010. So I was sick while I was doing the film because uh, I just had to understand. It's like, why... Why are people being misdiagnosed? Why are they? Not, why are people going bankrupt? The insurance won't cover simple antibiotics, simple safe antibiotics to treat something that's imminently curable. Why are the tests bad? Why are these academic physicians saying all Lyme patients who aren't cured by four weeks of antibiotics are crazy loonies? You know, so that's that was the genesis of the documentary. So I was going to ask you that, you know, what was it inside of you that, that kind of made you decide to do that extra step? You know, a lot of people, obviously 200000 per year, if what I've been reading is right, are affected this way, but not a lot of them decide, I'm going to, you know, do a documentary and figure this out and find out what, you know, how everybody else is dealing with this. So that was one of the questions I had had for you was kind of what was it inside of you that made you decide to go that route? Was it during the documentary that the idea for the book began was there was there a a circumstance or something that happened during the filming of the documentary that made you start to think this might be something more than just a naturally occurring uh, phenomenon well i'll just back up and say you know i'm a really driven person mm-hmm. i was a marathoner in college you know i never give up and then i just when i crisscrossed the us and talked to all these lyme patients i just felt mad and i felt angry at the injustice of how these truly sick people were being treated. So, um, and then, you know, I met this uh, documentarian, uh, Andy Abraham Wilson, you know, who felt the same way. So it was a mission for us to try and educate people on the way it was. I mean, before then, the main source of information on Lyme disease were academic journals, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that the messages were tightly controlled by a small group of researchers who sort of were there in the beginning of the Lyme discovery. And they, um, they, they had a certain kind of group bias about what the disease is, which is easy to diagnose, easy to treat, easy to cure. So we showed the minority report of that, you know, exactly. You know, and so I, I think the, the big thing the film did was it made Lyme patients feel like they weren't alone. It, it was a, a good way to explain to their relatives and friends, this is what I have and other people have it too. And I'm not just a crazy person. And then I don't know if it changed any minds of doctors, but because it is hard to watch an hour and a half of this problem that you didn't even know existed. But I, you know, I, I still get good praise from patients saying, thank you for doing this. You know, it really made me feel less alone, but okay. So during the filming, uh, there have been rumors about, Lyme disease being a bioweapon, having escaped from Plum Island, which is just right off of Lyme, Connecticut, uh, across the Long Island Sound. Those rumors have been around forever. Mm-hmm. And Michael Carroll wrote a book about um, an alleged biological weapons release called Lab 257. So he was the first out with it. But when we were doing the film, we realized it, that subject was a little bit too hot to handle. No one would fund that kind of fringe theory. But when we knew there might be something about uh, to it was when Andy and I went to um, Hamilton, Montana, which is the 
the large tick research facility of the U.S., to talk to the discoverer of the Lyme disease bacterium, Willy Bergdorfer. And he was a Swiss-American scientist who came here in the 50s. And so we were interviewing him, and um, in the middle of it, of setting up, about an hour into setting up, there was a knock on the door by a scientist, and he said, I need to sit on this interview. And it was a very tense standoff. Mm. And uh, the director kicked him out, but, you know, he said there's some things Willie can't talk about. So Willie was actually very mad at that whole interchange. His, his feathers were ruffled. And during that interview, he said, you know, uh, I think the NIH knows that Lyme disease is, is chronically disabling. It injures the immune system of young, young people, you know, with developing uh, neurological systems. And then after the two-hour interview, he said, uh, after the camera was turned off, he said with a little smile, I didn't tell you everything. So I guess after the documentary, we were left with a feeling that there was more to this subject. But, you know, we had, we'd been filming for three and a half years. We had to get it out. And so a book wasn't even on the horizon for me. I thought once we did all the marketing for the film, I was five years into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, I'm going to let someone else carry the torch of this cause. I, you know, I'm better now. I have a great job at Stanford writing about great scientific discoveries and scientists. So I thought, well, I'd move on. And so I was about a year into my Stanford job when all of a sudden I got a call from another indie filmmaker friend of mine, Tim Gray, who says, He's on a bad cell phone connection. He says, I'm just speeding away from Hamilton, Montana. And I just talked to Willie Bergdorfer and he said, Lyme disease is a bioweapon. And I said, oh, okay, all right. Well, what's the proof? And he says, I'll send you the video. So he had done this intense three-hour-plus interview with Willie Bergdorfer. And at the end of it, he said, you know, that he had worked on biological weapons and when he was investigating the outbreak of Lyme disease in the late 70s, he thought that what he saw there was related to what they were developing in the lab back during the biological weapons program. So, But it was just the barest confession. That was, I mean, and he was, he had advanced Parkinson's, so it was really, you know, to me it wasn't definitive proof. It's like that was the starting point of the investigation. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it would be, uh, it would end up in the the waste bin of conspiracy theories unless I really built the case for what he said. And so that started really the five to six year investigation that led to the book Bitten. So he was asserting that Lyme disease itself was actually man-made? No, um, the way it was phrased by Tim Gray is there, there were these um, scientific papers from the fifties where Willie was mixing, he was, there were ticks and he would ram a a glass pipette down the mouth of the ticks. Hmm. And then he would feed in different diseases into the gullet of the tick, different biological agents that are considered weapons nowadays. Mm -hmm. So what Tim was trying to get him to say is those ticks were weaponized and you think some of them got out, and that's what you saw in around Lyme, Connecticut. So he was mixing in those ticks, and you can see the pictures from that paper in my book 
of these ticks lined up. They're pressed in in clay and the pipettes are shoved in their mouths. And then he says he put tularemia, which is a bioweapon, Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus, which is a weapon, rabies, etc. Because what they were trying to do for the biological weapons program is find the perfect combination of ticks and diseases for specific military purposes and climates. So you'd want a tick that could survive in cold weather, like in Siberia, you know, for one purpose, or you'd want maybe a relapsing fever tick or a, a louse for a warm climate like Vietnam or Cuba. What? So that, that was the start of the research, but I knew nothing about the program at that time. Why would they would they take and try to weaponize insects? What is the logic behind that? And I only ask that because if I drop some ticks, just to kind of the point, if you said, were some of these ticks maybe ones that they had worked on that got out. Why is there, why was there this uh, push to weaponize insects that could potentially migrate? You know, they're going to migrate at some point, right? You, you can't control them. How do you control that? What's the logic behind it? Well, you have to go back to the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. And after that war, the Russians and the Americans were rushing to pick the brains of German and Japanese scientists who were working on weapon systems. And in Germany and Japan, they had quite extensive biological weapons programs. So we saw, we meaning the Pentagon, saw what our enemies were working on. And the Russians took some of the, you know, the Russians took some of them too. So we knew mm-hmm. whatever they knew, the Russians had now. And so there was fear and paranoia that the Russians would use it against us. So we developed in the U.S. a dual you know, defensive and offensive program with weapons. But the question really is why use insects, which seems like a bad idea. And I think many people in the Pentagon (laughs) decided it was a bad idea eventually. But that was after many, many open air experiments. But, uh, you know, I'll just read this one section in the book that talks about the Army's strategy. And this is in 1953. The advantage of arthropods, those are eight-legged bugs like Mm -hmm. ticks and lice, as bioweapons carriers are these. They inject the agent directly into the body so that a mask is no protection to a soldier, and they will remain alive for some time, keeping an area constantly dangerous. So they're the perfect stealth weapon. You know, you can't tell who, who deployed it, and sometimes there's a lag time. So maybe you want to destroy an economy over time, so then later on, it's easier for your soldiers to go in who have been vaccinated, hopefully for the for the microbe in the in the insects. So perfect stealth weapon. Now at the time, people don't know. I mean, this has only come to light in the last two decades. Is the entomological or bug-borne weapons program was almost as well funded and staffed as the Manhattan Project. So in a way, those two groups in the Pentagon were vying for resources. They were competing. And, uh, and you know, the, the generals wanted a portfolio of weapons that would meet certain objectives. So on the insect side or the bug side, they had lethal weapons and uh and that might be tularemia in ticks, um, and which is a very deadly organis- organism, um, creates lesions and height, fever and temperature, etc. 
And then for they had a whole arm of the weapons program that were incapacitating. So it would just sort of weaken a population and you could take over the infrastructure. But, you know, the people who ran the power plants or the factories would be alive so they could teach you, even though they were really sick. And so that potentially kind of something like Lyme disease, right? It isn't necessarily going to kill you, but it will make you significantly weakened. Yeah. And so, I mean, I have to clarify one thing that sort of spun out of control over the summer about the book is in the book, I don't say Lyme disease was weaponized. I I think it's a possibility, but Willie never said that. And I never found definitive evidence of that. But I did find that um, at least one organism that was found around Lyme, Connecticut at the same time as Lyme disease was... um, was weaponized extensively, a lethal form and an incapacitating form. So I, I'm pretty clear in the book about what I know and what I don't know and what were the tick-borne diseases that were weaponized. They're very well documented that they were weaponized and and Lyme disease is still a question, you know, if it was weaponized. I didn't find the proof. So do you have an idea of when did this happen? Uh, if we're saying that something, there was some kind of an uh, industrial accident, for lack of a better term, and maybe some of the these insects were released, do you know about when that happened? About what time? So what I started with is the public-facing story, which is Willie Brigdorfer was, well, Yale started investigating in the late 70s this weird disease that was making a lot of people sick mm-hmm. in and around Long Island Sound. So that includes Manhattan, Long Island, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts. So that's all, you know, the water around Long Island. So he started investigating that, uh, that would be Alan Steer, a scientist at Yale. Mm -hmm. And they, they, Yale sort of thought it was a virus and they went down that for several years and then they, they ran out of ideas. And so then they called in Willie Bergdorfer from the leading tick research facility, which is Rocky Mountain Lab in Hamilton, Montana. So he started analyzing the blood, and he's the one that first started seeing a bunch of tick-borne diseases like rickettsias, and the, and eventually he found the Lyme spirochete. And the disease was pegged on the Lyme spirochete, but what he told me in a 2013 interview is he thought the thing that was making people sick was this, the two other tick-borne diseases, which appear to be um, a cousin of Rocky Mountain spotted fever and another virus called Colorado tick fever virus. But that is yet to be definitively proven. I asked that because I think like most people, you know, I, I'm mid forties. I grew up in a wooded area in Ohio and, you know, I spent a lot of time in the woods and, and it never seemed to be uh, a concern at all. Uh, I mean, I remember one time when somebody, my mother, I think found a tick on me but that was it. And it seems like now, anywhere you go, uh, you know, there's this fear. And uh, just saying that, I, I live in Florida now, northern Florida. And just between you and I and on Facebook, we have two common Facebook friends because of Lyme disease. And it's weird that you and I, who live on c- completely opposite uh, coasts, uh, sides of the, of the country, we have that common thread because of it. So I, that's why I was wondering, you know, was there a kind of a genesis point that we think, okay, that this had to happen sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, something like that, just because that's when we started to see more of these cases. Yeah. So let let me sort of like 
pull the the lens back of this problem, sure. which is where I where I ended up in the book. Whereas there's the public facing story was Willie was the hero. He discovered Lyme or he published on Lyme disease in '82. Um, this germ, this Borrelia burgdorferi, this spirochete can be cured with two to four weeks of antibiotics. Yay, NIH. Willie from NIH solved the problem. Let's move on, mm-hmm. you know, and the miracle of antibiotics can cure everything. So that was an oversimplification of the real story of the investigation and how you treat it. And, and really the complexities of when you have a tick with two to five germs in it and it it's mainlined into your bloodstream. So, you know, that's a complex infection that very few doctors know how to handle, I think. But what I did was I went back to the early days, like way before, like a decade before that public announcement. And what I found is around Long Island Sound, Lyme, Connecticut, 1968 was when three freaky new tick-borne diseases that had never been seen before. I mean, or maybe they hadn't been seen at that level of virulence. So Mm -hmm. 1968, what you had was um, babesiosis, especially around Nantucket, Massachusetts. And that was the first, that was a cattle disease before only. And that was the first time babesiosis had crossed over demand. Then you had this uh, Rocky Mounted spotted fever like rickettsia, but it didn't test positive for Rocky Mounted spotted fever. So some people died on Long Island, especially, but it didn't test positive for it. So it was just baffling. And then you had you know, Yale investigating around Lyme, Connecticut, all these families getting this thing called Lyme arthritis, and no one had ever seen that before and didn't know what caused it. So if you look at it with that lens, it's like, wow, you know, global warming doesn't cause all of a sudden the appearance of three crazy new tick-borne diseases. Mm -hmm. What else could it be? So then that drove me to investigate the history of the biological um, weapons program. And and what you realize is um, before you, that, that this whole program existed to, have, to create this stealth insect-borne we- weapon, I have, you know, three live witnesses who said they worked at Fort Detrick, the headquarters of Biological Weapons Program, figuring out how to drop infected ticks from planes and containers, you know. They were like these little tubes that they would put in a, an M33 munitions, it's a mm-hmm. bomb, a certain altitude, it would explode and the ticks and they'd figured out <laughs> the right amount of humidity and, and shavings so that they would float and it would be raining ticks over an area. Oh my so goodness. they, so they did that. And one of those guys who said he, um, a witness who worked for the company, the CIA during, right after Bay of Pigs, the Cuban fiasco, and he dropped them on Cuban sugar workers. And, you know, I wasn't going to publish that in the book, but then when the Kennedy assassination files were released in 2017 and 18, I found documentations of that program that matched up with with everything he told me over several interviews. So you were able to find someone outside of Willie. Sounds like you found a couple of people outside of Willie who were able to kind of corroborate what he had been telling you. That was my next question. Yes. So Jim Oliver who worked at Fort Detrick, and then he eventually ran the Tick Museum in Georgia Southern University. He was one of the people that worked on the airplane drop, and then Willie, and then 
this other guy who likes who worked for the CIA who likes to remain anonymous. So for obvious reasons, sure. But, but okay. But back to your original question is like, well, why all of a sudden is there this tick-borne disease problem yeah. in different parts of the U.S.? So you have to you go back and look at the uh, history of biological weapons, and there were certain to, to weaponize an insect, you have to have a lot of like testing and prototypes. So. The first case of Lyme disease was in Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin. And what's, you know, why northern Wisconsin? Well, at University of Wisconsin-Madison is where Ira Baldwin, who was like the bioweapons visionary, was there. And he did a bunch of little open-air tests around Wisconsin. So, you know, the question is, is was that one of his prototype tests? I don't know. But then, you know... Uh, there was certainly a lot of testing around New York city. Um, so I haven't definitively, you know, figured out what, where and when that release was, but certainly if you look at the, you know, the, the coincidental evidence, it seems like it could have come from Plum Island or there's, um, a naval ammo munitions dump where all the, the boats carrying stuff to Cuba would, would stop off there. Um, so, you know, and then I have to say after a while, someone decided that putting germs in insects is a really bad idea. You can't control it. <laughs> right. It's really hard to keep two different organisms alive at high altitude in a plane. So what they ended up doing is switching over to just the microbe and not the insect or, or bug. So, you know, just like anthrax, you can take bacteria bacterium and brew it in a large like beer stainless steel tank by the tons and then you uh aerosolize the bacterial spores and then you can spray it over large battalion or city-sized areas from planes just with crop dusting kind of sprayers see that's when i know that i'm not nearly insidious enough to to for government work i think i would never even think of I'm going to put this into bugs and drop bugs on people. I would have just immediately gone to the to the aerosol route right off the bat. It seems easier to me. That's why I was just – it's always kind of tripped me out. My, my brain does not allow me to think I'm going to find a way to make this and put it into a, a bug. But what you said about that and their logic and their rationale makes total sense when you think about it. Being able to kind of control that population, that local region – Having those areas kind of be dead zones for a while, you know, people are sick and easily controllable for a while because those those organisms are still there. That's it makes total sense. My brain just would never have gotten there. I, I'm not creative enough well, for that. Well, you know, I, I just I've just really spent a lot of time trying to get into the psyche of these Cold War warriors for sure. Like Willie, you know, because Willie started out being enthralled by science. He worked at the Swiss Tropical Institute. He was very excited about curing, you know, insect-borne diseases like relapsing fever. Uh, but his first job was at in Hamilton, Montana for the public health service here. And, you know, it was a creeping thing. He had a growing family. He needed to support them. He had a, a job where, yeah, sometimes Fort Dietrich would send over these, these weird projects and he could sort of connect the dots and figure out what they were doing. But you know, he could also work on his own pet projects. So, and, you know, and then before long, by the time I got to him, it had gotten to him. 
And at the point where he knew he wasn't going to live much longer, I think he finally let a journalist in and started talking. And that's where he told me, this is in the 2013 interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I put um, Plague and Fleas for the program. I put Yellow Fever and Mosquitoes. I, you know, put various diseases and ticks. And he said they asked me if I could figure out how to make ticks reproduce at a faster rate so they could make very large quantities that could be dropped um, from planes, etc. Because the once you infected one, any any offspring of them would also be infected? Is that... I, I wanted to make sure that I, I'm understanding that right, too. They're not, I don't have to literally infect every insect, right? I mean, they, they infect a, a small portion and then they breed from there? Well, that was part of the experiments. Ideally, they would get a microbe that would be what they would call transovarially transmitted. So that would be any of the rickettsials or some of the, many of the rickettsials like Rocky Man and Spotted Fever. They, you know, if a pregnant or gravid tick uh, was about to lay two to 3,000 eggs, all of those eggs would have be infected. Hmm. So um, Borelli, Bergdorferi, I've always thought that would be a lousy weapon because I don't think it's trans ovarially transmitted by the tick and it's really slow growing. So, and you can't grow it easily outside of the tick. It needs living bug tissue to grow. So that's, that's why I think it would be a lousy bioweapon, but ha, rickettsials, you know, Q fever, anthrax, they were all perfect for spraying over large areas, which the military called the LAC program large area coverage program and they tested them in this large one million liter steel sphere called the eight ball and they would put animals and people uh test subjects would put their faces up to the holes on the side of the sphere to to test aerosol transmission of germs so they would infect themselves that way yeah yeah so what happened is uh during i think the korean war they they said or the Vietnam Vietnam War, really mostly, they'd say to religious conscientious objectors, like mostly Seventh Day Adventists, you can either go to Vietnam and be on the front lines, or you can help us test our um, vaccines at Fort Detrick. And these vaccines for were for a lot of biological weapons mm-hmm. that they were worried that the enemy would spray on them, but also they had offensive programs too that they wanted to test them for. How were you able to uh, uncover all of this documentation that you have and that you that you put in the books? Are they now uh, public domain? Are they are you able to get them through some a freedom of information request? How do you get those things that are essentially telling you how they created, developed, and administered biological weapons? Well, it started with Willy Bergdorfer's confession, and you know he was a very credible witness because. Mm-hmm. His entire fame was based on discovering Lyme disease and saying that was what made people sick in Lyme, Connecticut. So uh, with him saying, well, I sort of lied or I admitted parts of the truth. There was something else, you know, and I was told to cover it up, which is what he basically said. So it started with that. And then you start pulling threads. I I like to say it's a hundred thousand piece jigsaw puzzle where you get all the pieces from different places. And so the second big breakthrough was Willy Bergdorfer with this mindset decided to donate all his private lab notebooks Mm. with 
the document, you know, the notes about these experiments. And he gave it, you know, he had a really good Mormon friend in Hamilton, Montana, and he, he called up a, you know, a Mormon that he knew was active in the Lyme community, who's Ron Lindorf, he's mentioned in the book, and he says, Ron, I know you're a professor at BYU, would you donate all my private research papers to BYU? Uh, and Ron said, yes, and then he knew I was working on Willie's biography, so he called and said, do you want to look at them before they're put in the archive? So anyways, all those papers, you know, I got an advanced look at them, but all almost all of them are at Utah Valley University available online so anybody can look at those and but you know it's really hard to decipher them unless you have a PhD in microbiology so a lot of the five years was trying to learn microbiology on the on the sly so then you know that was the the lab part and that's where I could prove that there was another organism in all, you know, in most of the blood work mm -hmm. around Lyme, Connecticut, that was never published, which is sketchy. You know, that's not what a good scientist does. A scientist finds sort of like some data that doesn't make sense now. They include it because you never know if it'll make sense down the road. Then, um, then that was so that was the lab side, and then on the political side. I had to sort of piece together the story of the biological weapons program, which was available in certain books like six legged soldiers or, um, several, several books that are mm -hmm. in my bibliography. And then I went to archives. So I've probably been to like 20 archives that had bits and pieces of the military policy. So that would be university of Wisconsin, national archives, um, the Hoover Institute, um, so you just get little bits and pieces and eventually the big picture comes into focus because, you know, this, this biological weapons program was as secretive as the Manhattan project. And how do they keep things a secret? They compartmentalize it. So like there were about 50 universities that all did pieces of the biological weapons program, including Stanford, my alma mater, you know, they worked on the aerobiology of getting particle sizes right for different temperatures and humidities so that the microbes would be deployed in the right way, in the desired way, you know. So you just start researching in the different compartments and eventually you can connect the dots. Have you ever been contacted to date by the government to, to dispute any of this information or to try to censure you in any way? You know, it was surprising when the book came out in May of 2019, I expected a big smackdown. Right. But they sort of ignored it, which I take it as a compliment because they couldn't, you know, get on CNN and say that that's bullocks. No way. <laughs> or are they playing maybe so, the, the long game and thinking, well, if, if we don't say anything, the, the collective American conscious will simply forget it. It'll, it'll kind of go over their head. Maybe yes, that, you know, that, mean, that game. That was their strategy. Yeah. Their strategy is it's, it's a noisy time with the politics right now, right. maybe it'll yeah. just die out. And then mid July of that year, something that no one expected, including me was that representative Chris Smith from New Jersey was in a defense appropriations meeting and he picked up the book bitten and he waved it around and said, the evidence in this book is really credible. And I think we should add to the department of defense budget for 2020, an investigation into bug borne weapons. And then everything just exploded. I mean, 
the DOD budget is the biggest pile of money and everybody around the world wants a piece of it. So then the story went viral in sort of not a good way for me because no one had read the book. And then I started getting like negative feedback. Mm -hmm. There was this one uh, news chain. It's an online news outlet that gives content away for free, which is called The Conversation. And they had a professor from Tufts University write and say, I knew Willie. He was never a biological weapons experiment, you know, biological weaponeer and Lyme disease could never have been weaponized, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it was just like he hadn't even read the book, but he all of a sudden was an expert. And then the Washington Post picked that up. So that there was a lot of damage control that once that fake news was out, it was impossible for me to put that back in the bottle. Well, that's the world we live in now, right? Is, is the social media, the fake news, the online experts, you know, the keyboard warriors, if you will, everybody has an opinion. And now it's easy to get that opinion out, you know, where it was much more difficult even 20 years ago, where you didn't have, you know, it was in print somewhere. It wasn't you know, just flying through the web. So what is the next step? I mean, I, I know you said that uh, the congressman or the senator was waving the book around talking about having some type of uh, investigation about this. To what end? What What is the ultimate goal? Well, I, a lot of the documents on the biological weapons program have been destroyed after the program was canceled. It was canceled in between, it was December, dissolved between 68 and 72. So all, all those documents were destroyed, but there are little pockets of them that are still classified because they're all, you know, they're all worried that our enemies will use those weapons against us. So I had a lot of trouble using uh, Freedom of Information Acts to get that. They would say, you know, I would, it would take over a year to get a, a reply back that said, you know, uh, we have that document. It's been declassified, but we can't release it for reasons of security, national security. So I get a lot of replies like that. So to me, Freedom of Information Act has been fairly worthless under the last two administrations. Mm -hmm. So the great thing about the DOD investigation, which passed the House but didn't make it out of the, the Senate, was that you could instantly open those that locked library in Dietrich or wherever it is now. Uh, so there, I, I'm exploring through my Congress people other ways to getting that information. It doesn't necessarily have to be into a law. In a law, I can through my Congress people, I can request that. So I'm pursuing that. <laughs> And then I'm just trying to find whistleblowers. I mean, the great thing about the book is all of a sudden these people, just like Willie Bergdorfer, who have been sitting on these secrets that have been nagging their conscience, uh, are coming forward, including one in northern Florida, where you live, mm -hmm. who said, oh, yeah, this, you know, old Earl down the street told me at Fort Elgin they were <laughs> releasing ticks, you know, so I get I get leads like that. And, you know, some of them aren't real, but some of them are. So I'm just like pulling those little threads, trying to get to the truth. So what does that lead to? Let's say the, the truth comes out and the government just flat acknowledges, yes, we had a biological weapons program. Yes, we tried to weaponize ticks. It didn't work out or we've scrapped the plan now. What is it helping now? Or are we able to, how do we get rid of the ticks? We can't do that, right? I mean, it's almost impossible to eradicate kind of the fruit of, of those experiments. What's the ultimate goal? The, the goal is to find out 
you know, what insects or tick-borne diseases mm. were released in what areas and what microbes were tested, you know, okay. so that in right now, the oversimplification of the tick problem is you have Lyme or you don't, and you have post-Lyme treatment, chronic disease or whatever. And, and so what I'm hoping the book does is sort of widen the lens on the possibilities of what could be wrong with these people. I mean, after interviewing so many of them, I think they're really, really sick. And we need to know, you know, what are the germs or the combinations of germs, which are super hard to diagnose. And if the germs are weaponized, then, you know, there may be a secret cure or a vaccine in the secret military files that we would want to know about. True. So, yeah. You know, if it's a weaponized Rickettsial, you know, at what university did they test it? At Fort Detrick's eight ball, like what vaccines did they test? Were any of them promising? So, so then we can really address this problem. And then another corollary to that is the, the Centers for Disease Control. Since all these aerosol programs have been, you know, late 60s, haven't been doing a good job of tracking tick-borne diseases. And our poor local health departments who are the front line for that surveillance are underfunded. And, you know, anytime there's Zika or Ebola or some other mosquito-borne disease, they're just off doing that and they mm -hmm. forget to t collect ticks that day. So let's, you know, finally this year, the CDC said, okay, we're going to get real about surveillance and up date how we collect ticks and what's in them so you know that's promising in may they said that are, are there so, no anyways, current vaccines is there not a vaccine currently well there's this uh there's one vax well the vaccine that was released i think 2000 or the late 90s that was pulled from the market hmm. for various reasons and it's hard to sort through that since we don't have the actual data from the vaccine trial. We, they didn't have to release that. Uh, so just read online what you think of that. So that was pulled off. Some people say that works. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. But there is a new one that's sort of based on the same approach that was sold. It was developed in the U.S. and it was sold to someone in Europe named Valevna. And they're doing a, a phase one trial on that right now. So the jury's still out on that. But I have to back up and say that how can you actually do a vaccine trial for Lyme disease if you don't have a good test for it right now? And yeah, then the true. other thing is, yeah. like, what what if we have a Lyme vaccine and everybody gets it, but what about the other 20 tick-borne diseases that can kill you? You know, is that going to lead you to have a sense of false security? Yeah, that was the other point I was going to make, too, is that it sounds like Lyme gets all the publicity but there are actually much more dangerous things out there as well. You said that you were actually sicker from, what was it, the Rickettsial? Is that what you were calling it? The Babesia. The, the Babesia. From that yeah. than the Lyme disease. Yeah. And the the Lyme specialist I talked to said, when you have Lyme disease and Babesiaosis at the same time, it's super hard to get rid of. Hmm. Somehow those germs help each other. Um, well, we're coming up on kind of the hour here. And this is the last question I wanted to ask you. So- what kind of feedback have you gotten from the documentary and from, you said you wanted to kind of show a, a year in the life, as it were, for how people are, are dealing with this and, you know, hopefully getting the word out there. Have you received feedback from people who have seen the movie, maybe that, it's, that has helped them? So I, every week I get feedback from, from Lyme patients who saw mm -hmm. it and said, thanks, you know, I don't feel alone now. I know I'm, you know, other people are in the same place. There's more of a sharing of information on what's worked for people and what hasn't. 
And then the other thing, other feedback I get is people saying, oh, thank you. I could give it to my brother-in-law who's an infectious diseases doctor who never believed me, you know, that I had a real disease. So, so that's a good, the book, the book, I've gotten astounding feedback from surprising places. So of course, all the patients love it because you know, they all say, oh, I knew it. I knew it. Cause they know it's such an insidious disease. It's not that big of a leap for them to believe that there's some sort of weaponized germ that's at the bottom of it, you know? Uh, and the, you know, the government has acted in not a very transparent way about the disease all along. And I can say that, you know, having filed mm -hmm. many FOIA requests with the CDC and they take like five and a half years to get back to me. So, um, so, so that, but I, I would say the surprising thing is I've had a lot of uh, academics at universities are very, you know, who study tick-borne diseases and ticks, you know, sending me love letters, which is great <laughs> because that says the science was credible. I didn't overhype things. Um, and there's a call to actions to scientists to figure, to genetically sequence what was released around Long Island. You know, what is that germ? Where did it come from? What flask and what military lab or whatever? And then uh, I would say uh, the other thing that surprised me is mainstream media has just not covered it at all. I mean, there isn't one review in a major newspaper or magazine that covered the book. So they've just written it off as conspiracy theory. Another one of those Plum Island mm -hmm. theories, you know, so. Uh, that, that's really a hot button nowadays. You, you, it's a conspiracy theory. That's just their way of easily brushing you off without ever having to hear your, your argument or your evidence or anything. Well, you're just a conspiracy theorist and that's it. You're immediately disregarded. Um, it's, yeah. it's really but, uh, unfortunate. So, I mean, the thing I'm proud of, the most proud of it is it was really heavy duty black diamond science. Mm -hmm. And I think I made it accessible for non-scientists and very readable, entertaining story. Because really, above all, I just want to get the word about it out about, you know, it's the co-infection, stupid. It's not Lyme. It's the combination of Lyme and all these other tick-borne diseases. So that's what I want patients and their doctors to know. So if you look at on Amazon, it's got like almost 200 reviews five stars. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was on like four best of 2019 science reads lists. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of that because really my objective was to raise awareness. And I think the book is doing that and then just present a uh, credible, uh, theory as to what happened. Cause nobody has looked at the origin theory of Lyme disease. It's like what happened in the late sixties to create this horrible epidemic 50 years later. Well, it definitely must be incredibly satisfying for you. I, I can only imagine, honestly. You know, you take something where you are kind of at the depth of despair, and you've really been able to to make something pretty incredible out of it. So that must feel really good. I mean, and so I, I mean, I definitely thank you for being with us today. I mean, uh, I was very interested in in your story and in and in the whole idea of it itself. Like I said, I'm if you give me a government cover up or a conspiracy or Something like it doesn't take much for me to to buy in either. You know, it's not too hard to b believe. And it sounds like you found a lot of coincidental evidence or some evidence there where, hey, there are bio facilities lined up with areas where diagnoses were made. You know, there's not a whole lot you can say. Hey, I, I can pinpoint here are testing facilities and here are outbreaks of. Um, diagnosis. You know. And we absolutely, we absolutely, I mean, it isn't a conspiracy theory. We weaponize ticks. Yes. We drop them on enemies. 
we release hundreds of thousands of Lone Star ticks, the aggressive man-biting ticks that cause this red meat allergy, you know, on coastal Virginia, on the Atlantic bird flyway zone. And a year after that program ended, those uh, non-native ticks ended up in Long Island and started spreading rickettsials. So, you know, it, it, there are certain things that are undeniable. Mm-hmm. We put plague in fleas, diseases in ticks, yellow fever in mosquitoes, and planned on dropping them on our enemies. I mean, aren't those things bad enough as it is? I mean, ticks are terrifying. Mosquitoes are just disgusting. And then here we are making them worse. You know, it just doesn't seem right. Thank you again so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Once again, everybody, the book is titled Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. And also take a look at the documentary Under Our Skin, Dive Into the Lyme Disease Conspiracy. And again, you can find Chris online on her website, chrisnewby.com. Chris, was there anything else that you wanted to uh, address or bring up or any any appearances? I don't know if you do appearances, anything like that, uh, book signings, things like that, that people would want to know? Um, I am planning my travel schedule. I'm doing a lot of events in May and April. Um, May is Lyme Disease Awareness, and I'll be on the East Coast. So I'll just post it on my website when I have the events nailed down. Okay. Well, but th- thanks, Pete, so for uh, helping raise raise awareness. I, I think this uh, podcast will launch thousands of tick checks this summer. I hope so. Honestly, I really do hope so. I mean, I, it is like I said, it's a it's a real thing. And and uh, like I said, I've had several people, uh, friends of mine that are here in in Northeast Florida, who are also struggling with this. And so that was kind of the jump off point for me as well is seeing that not only did I know people that way, but then that you also brought this. Uh, you know, your book and your documentary out. So it all kind of lined up for me as well. So I'm with you. I agree. All right. Thanks so so much. Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you again. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Once again, that was Chris Newby. Uh, She is an author and a filmmaker. Uh, Done a lot of work, has really made a lot out of a bad situation for her. You know, had contracted the disease, was in kind of the depth of illness, had some inner resolve and said, I'm going to make something out of this. I'm going to figure out what this was that's going on. 200,000 people a year are affected by this. I don't know how many of them actually stand up and say, I'm going to do something about it, uh, you know, other than try to get better. So good on her. It takes a lot of intestinal strength to do that kind of thing. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Again, it doesn't take much for me to believe, A, that there was a biological weapons program, Obviously, there was. It doesn't take a whole lot for me to determine or or to believe that the U.S. government, foreign governments, were all in kind of a battle, a war, a race to find new ways to deliver biological agents onto enemies. There's documented evidence of this happening. It's not so hard to believe. It also is not hard to believe that the U.S. government would be subject to an industrial workplace accident. That happens all the time, too. So is it is it that much of a stretch to think that this biological weaponry was going on and there was some type of accident and now it is loose, working its way from coast to coast in our country, affecting 200,000 people per year? You know, what are your thoughts? Do you think that uh, Lyme disease or the other tick-borne illnesses that we're currently suffering from were engineered or weaponized by the U.S. government. You know, could be. 
If you have any feedback or you want to send us a letter, uh, you can email us, provemewrongcast at gmail.com. You can also look us up on Facebook. It is Prove Me Wrong. Instagram is Prove Me Wrong. If you're just looking for content on how to listen to the podcast online, you can look us up on any podcast app. We're also on the iTunes Store, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, really anywhere that you find podcasts, you can find the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, we have a YouTube channel. You can like and subscribe to this little banner right there at the bottom of the screen. And that way, when new content comes out, new content is released online, you will be the first one to get it. You won't have to search for it. It'll just pop up right there for you and give you a notification. So again, drop us a line if you have comments about today's episode or if you would like to suggest a topic for a new episode. I'm always looking for something new to talk about or someone new to talk to. So if you're also interested in contacting us and coming on the program, drop us a line on the email, provemewrongcast at gmail.com. And we'll set up some time and have you also come on and talk about something that means a lot to you. So before we go, let me say that this episode of the Prove Me Wrong podcast has been brought to you today by Zendozone Citronella Burners from J.T. Eaton. They are shaped like fearless little bug-repellent tiki gods, and we've been talking about bugs all night, so uh, you need a nice citronella candle. So let Surf and Stan, Hawaiian Howie, and Luau Lily bring the islands to your backyard with Zendozone Citronella Burners. Zendozones uses 3% citronella candles and incense cones, perfect for patios, decks, backyards, campsite, poolside, and more. You can enjoy the outdoors again. They are now available on Amazon and at Ace Hardware, and collect them all today. So once again, for my guest, Chris Newby, uh, this is Pete Lieb for the Prove Me Wrong podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.